Hello, everybody. Franchise University here with the eponymous. Uh, no, I nearly said Dean of Franchise University, but I know you've got <laughs> awful uh, memories of the word Dean. But there you go. Slowly I turn. Yeah, and slowly I turn. Uh, <laughs> with the usual intros and stuff. Uh, give us five stars on iTunes, and I'm sure there's other stuff as well. Anyway, we have... Oh, that's exactly what it is. Shane Douglas questions at gmail.com. I forgot to mention that last week, but we'll put it up uh, as a graphic. But So this is going to be the fan question episode of the month. If you want your... Uh, email read to your message your question read to Shane Douglas on air and only the best ones will get there because I gave this email out a couple of weeks ago and we got dozens and dozens and dozens of replies so I picked the best ones and hopefully we'll get to as many as we can at about 1 hour 20 or whatever we've got going but once again Shane Douglas questions at gmail.com submit them there and that is exactly what this fella did here Pete C Detroit Michigan Shane just curious if you have been approached by AEW Impact or anyone else to help them run their business, i.e. booking, writing, road agents, or is that something you would even be interested in? I think someone with your knowledge and experience in the wrestling business would get snatched up in short order. Thank you for the memories. You're a class act, and I enjoy your show very much. appreciate it, Pete. It's a a great question. Uh, No, the answer is no. Um, I think on both counts. Uh, The I was, I'm the guy that, and I've belabored this point, so I'll just briefly say it and you can find it in, in previous episodes. What kept me interested in wrestling and kept me from going crazy or having to go do drugs or get drunk every night was I had immersed myself into the business. And, and there was a very clearly delineating point. I, I live 23 miles from the Pittsburgh airport. And driving to the airport, I would get myself into the mindset of this crazy character called the franchise. And then, you know, sort of stay in character, but not like 24 hours a day, but I could access him quickly. Uh, my kids asked me recently, you know, six months ago, hey, dad, do that, do the franchise voice. We're sitting at the t- kitchen table uh, uh, and I couldn't do it. Like sitting here, I can't really do it because I'm not in that mindset. I can approximate it. I can do like a, an imitation of me doing the franchise. Uh and so, you know, being able to think like that guy and get in, into that, but but immersing myself in the business, that intrigues me. I'm not, I'm not a guy to sit there and go, okay, let's play a video game for six hours or let's watch TV for six hours or, re- you know, I can read for six hours, but uh, uh, it has to be something that interests me. And so to me, what was interesting was going and talking to the camera guy. Hey, hey, last week you did this shot like from this direction. Why'd you do that? They all oh, well, because perspective and they give, oh, okay, that makes sense. And, uh, and those things intrigued me. So yeah, I, I'd spent my career learning those things. I, I wondering why the promoter or the the booker would say, push this wrestler instead of that wrestler, or, you know, why is this match on in this spot uh, and not earlier or later? And, you know, that just kept me interested from being bored at, at work. You know, once you're dressed and your match is up in two or three hours, okay, then what play a video game, which I don't do. It's uh, I'm one of those old farts that, Mine is pong, right? I can mm. knock the knock the pong back and forth. Come on, you uh, must have got to at least centipede or something. <laughs> Pac-Man. Or Pac-Man. Uh, Pac-Man. Yeah, Pac-Man, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Walk, 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 walk. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, they, uh, uh, you know, so I, the answer is no. They, they, they Nobody has contacted. Uh, I, obviously, I think I have something to, to, to offer in that because, you know, when you, you succeed in this business, if, for the people that I look at that have succeeded in this business, they're they're usually pretty darn good at something. Uh, uh, but that all said, uh, based on what I've seen and, and my commentary on the current product of the business, 
When kids come to me in the dressing room and it's almost every weekend, Hey, what advice would you give me? And I tell them, and I'm not being a smart ass. I, I mean, this is gospel truth. There's not a single thing I would teach you that would make any sense to you because the business is not today what it was then. And, and you know, the NFL, you know, still scoring touchdowns and throwing passes and running balls and making tackles. Uh, but the game has, has transcended or moved on a uh, better, worse anybody's that that's a judgmental call. Uh, so for like the things that I would teach, I think are the things that are desperately missing. I think in a previous episode, we talked about, you know, how our bit like, you know, flair being that sage in the dressing room, uh, clearly he's got that upstairs and, uh, you know, that that's, what's needed. But when you hear guys saying, and I, again, this is not a, it was like a diss to my generation. Uh, when them say somebody saying uh, we're, we're not taking advice from legends anymore, nothing they can teach us. Well, before we started this episode, James just taught me a little bit about this thing called uh, the internet. <laughs> this might catch on, by the way. It has a chance to make it uh, the internet um, and these computer thingamajigs. Uh, but again, unless you have a willing audience to sit there and say, "Okay, I know I need to learn." Uh, I was keenly aware as that green kid in the dressing room. What I didn't know what I didn't know. But I knew there was a whole lot I didn't know. And, you know, so I had amazing teachers sitting around me and and, and divvying that off to me. I sat under that learning tree. Thank God I had it. Uh, I, I don't think there's a willingness in the kids today to take that. Uh, there's, I mean, it's faced, I guess, some pretty talented people in, in, behind the scenes that say AEW. Um, and, you know, Tom Pritchard and NWA and uh, Ricky Moore. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of really talented people out there that know their stuff. What I have no interest in is going and taking that and attempting to give it and people going, mm-hmm. I don't need to know that. Uh, or I don't want to learn that. Uh, that's, <laughs> I think people know my personality well enough that I, I don't take well to that kind of stuff. Um, not that I expect anybody should all oh, bow down because Shane Douglas is here. Uh, well, but- I, I, I'm actually going to do apologize for interrupting you. Very specifically, impact that I want to bring up here because Lance Storm's there, Tommy Dream is there, a couple of other of the ECW guys are there as well. So there's clearly more people working backstage, working with the guys more on your level of thinking. So would that appeal yeah. to you more? Uh, possibly, uh, but but only if, if the fit was right. Uh, I don't. I, I've reached a time, a stage of my life where I've realized there's there's a fewer steps ahead than there have been behind, and I in no way mean that like there's any issues or whatever. I hope to be around for a. I hope 35 years from now, you and I are still doing this, and you finally have some gray hair. Uh, but you know, it, it's I, I just you know I I, I want to take the time that I have and use it for the things that I hadn't been able to do before and had time to do before. And uh, I still have bucket lists and everything. To sum it up, I, I would say if there was a place where I would, could plug in, where I could be relevant, where the audience, in this case, the dressing room, was receptive to what we were giving. Um, and I'm not so sure I see that. Uh, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I was in at WrestleCade last year. Uh, we did the the little uh, shtick, the little spiel with um, – uh, uh, impact and, and, you know, playing off the dynamic dudes and, 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 and fun to, you know, go in and make fun of yourself and have, and, and do that stuff. But, uh, and, and I saw a young dressing room there that seemed to be receptive and open. I was there for 30 minutes, 45 minutes. Uh, you know, so, uh, 
what I see transpiring on, on, on the, the few times that I drop in and, 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 and do watch stuff or when somebody sends me stuff, I see, and I asked Arn this question, how is it possible that I see Arn Anderson, you know, who's a, for anybody in this business knows like what, what a uniquely special talent he is and was. And, uh, and, uh, and a great teacher. I, I know cause I learned from him. A lot of us learn from him. <clears throat> How was it that I don't see any Arn Andersonisms in the AEW talent? Uh, and, and that to me is like a telltale sign. Uh, you know, I, I told you before off camera, I think with, you know, with one of my other friends in AEW, just like giving me a retort that I didn't expect from them. Um, it, you know, it's, uh, and since talked to other friends that are working there and they, you know, not, don't sound like they're having a lot of fun. So, uh, you know, for me, I, it's look, there's a, this is a very hard business to pick up. It's a hard thing to learn, uh, impossible in many ways to some people, you see some people come into the business and never really quite grasp it. Um, I was one of those guys that really took, took it ser- probably too seriously at times. Uh, I wanted to learn. It was just like, it's what kept my brain engaged. And so I, I took the time to learn all those different facets and aspects, not just from a wrestler's point of view, from a booker's point of view, from the cameraman's point of view, from the televised, uh, what the way it's televised, the way the card is set up, uh, why this wrestler over that wrestler, those are the, that was what kept my brain engaged. And I just don't see very many outlets where that's even appreciated today. And uh, I don't have the time to waste in my life to sit there and say, okay, you should go left, go left. And I'm explaining to you why you should go left. And then they go right and come back. Go, got it. You know, no, it's, you know, Bill Watts today would probably not succeed with his style of management. Uh, you know, he was, uh, we've, it's renowned. You've heard every wrestler talk about this. Um, but I think it's also relative to say that as much as I couldn't stand that style at the time as, a, as that young kid that didn't know anything, you probably heard me more times than not mention Bill and say something like, I learned this from Bill Watts or Bill Watts taught me that. Uh, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a fun ride, but boy, it was a learned ride. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's happenstance. I just don't see the place where that would apply today. Next question. But thanks for the question. That's great. Mm. Uh, Floyd Chavez. James and Shane, first and foremost, I thank you for giving the people the podcast and putting it on YouTube. I have a couple of questions. How did the franchise get the... Right, okay, loads of people have asked about the Perfect Strangers song, but I think we've already I think we've already done that one, sorry. Uh, yeah. My second question, there is a video on YouTube called Triple Threat Promo ECW October 1998. If you can remember, Shane, what did Francine say to the crowd in Cleveland? I can never make it out, and I watch this video all the time to draw inspiration. Thank you. Uh, if you oh, don't know what it is, I, I can at least try and find it because I didn't tee this one off. Yeah, I rem- there were a couple of times we did those types of promos and Franny was wanting to, you know, instead of just being the stick figure standing there uh, t- to be involved. And, and she she by that time had really taken on the character. And so it was a good thing to do to hand it to her. Uh, it, but I, specifically which one they're talking about, I don't know. But she would usually have some pretty, pretty crafty thing to say. So... Mm-hmm. If, if you have it, I'd love to see it. Well, he keeps watching the video, and he doesn't know what she says either, so I think it, uh, I can try and find it if you wish. Uh, well, I mean, it's, uh, i tell you what, 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 why don't we come back to it? I'll, I'll, I'll mark that down. What was it, Cleveland 98? Cleveland, October 1998. We'll mark that down. We'll try and find an answer for you by the end of the show. What's yeah. uh, Right, now, this is something else I've got to apologize for. My printer is out of colored ink, and um, all half of these names are in blue. 
So I've just got a blank space here now. So <laughs> apologies, uh, fan who wrote in. Uh, fan who wrote in says, what's the worst fan-ass whipping a fan took trying to take on a wrestler that Shane ever saw? Hmm. Well, uh, there was... Uh, the worst I ever saw was uh, in the Elks Lodge, uh, ECW... Uh, Madhouse of Extreme. Um, Brandy and I are in the ring doing a promo live, and fans are throwing stuff. Well, something hits me, and I, you know, if you stop and go, hey, who threw that? Everybody going to start throwing more, right? So you just sort of keep going. And it's hotter than hell in this building, so I keep wiping my face, you know, the sweat off because I'm a sweater. And one of the times I take my hand and go to put it down, I see red, and I look down, and I'm like, what the hell? Franny goes, bleeding. How the hell am I bleeding, right? I knew something had hit me. So I come back to the dressing room, and security, from Atlas Security, has gotten, they saw the kid literally throw this <laughs> thing. And uh, so I go to the back, and uh, I, I tried to work the guy a little bit. I, I said, I'm going to go down to the uh, production truck, <laughs> like ECW had a production truck. And I said, I'm going to go back and rewind it. If I see you throwing something, come back here and beat the shit out of you. And there's guy. He's. I swear to God, franchise. I swear to God, this guy's. I swear to God, he kept saying. So I turn. I walk away. And now people get between us, and he starts, you know, f you, and starts running his mouth. So I turn to go back after him. And one of the Atlas guys uh, was a like Samoan Tongan island guy, right? Was as wide as he was tall. Big, big guy. And he grabs me. Ain't worth a franchise. Ain't worth a franchise. Don't do it. Don't do it. You know, get in trouble. That kind of thing. And this guy, this fan, says to him, using some very non-kosher language, says, what are you, Shane Douglas's Uncle Tom's? <laughs> mm. And this big boy who just talked me out turns around and goes, oh, wham, <laughs> big fist, knocks the guy out cold. And I said, hey, wait, I thought it wasn't worth it. <laughs> like, you know, you, he, uh, he'd had it. And uh, that was probably the worst I'd ever seen. The other times, I think, you know, there were obviously over the years, times and like wrestlers would get somebody pulled back and go at them. But typically, the, the, you know, they didn't want lawsuits. So they would like get in between and you know, more tussling than anything. But there were times that I think the worst beating I ever saw a fan take was in the Pittsburgh Civic Arena, and which is now gone. Uh, the security had taken this guy in the back and the guy kept running his mouth. And so they, they like physically whooped the shit out of the guy, like slamming him into the wall and punching him and kicking him. And it was the, their security, the building security. And, uh, uh, lesson learned, like <laughs> never get smart with the security guys out there because <laughs> they get you back here and you have a tendency to run into the wall and stuff like that, you know, but it was, uh, uh, thankfully that doesn't happen. And for the fans out there, understand, you know, our job is to get you wound up and we want to do that, but you know, to suddenly get so into the storyline that you want to in interject yourself and physically do something. A, a lot of these guys are pretty salty characters. That's the first thing. Secondly, they got security on their side and the, the law on their side. So you get into the back, you, whether building security, the, the, promotion security or the wrestlers uh you know as i think through the dressing room like the different names like like a guy like big show big shows a you know, uh, mark henry big powerful guys right but really got nice guys too but like you, you got somebody that big and strong and powerful and they lose their cool like anybody can lose their cool uh you know it's a uh, 
probably wouldn't be pretty. And 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 you take it a step further. We were just talking about this with a friend the other day. Uh, I've got a friend that's an actor, big guy, you know, and and he's you know he's spent his whole life you know being this size, and he said there's this thing that will happen the first time like you walk into a bar or a restaurant and everybody goes like the over the top wow man how big are you and that goes on and on and on. Well, the other night he's at a football game, his nephew's football game, goes into the bathroom. There's a bunch of teenagers in the bathroom. Uh, where they weren't taught this, I don't know, but like you don't really sort of you, you know the men's room system right you, you walk in there's not really a it's not a place to converse like you walk in there take care of your business keep your eyes you know and, and you're a stall that kind of thing and these guys these kids keep going over the top well n- none of the and i'm trying to explain to him none of these kids have been disciplined right you, you, I, I grew up with discipline at home discipline at school discipline on the street hell your friends parents would beat you if you did something stupid and it's funny how we sort of you know you learn okay we're you can't just do whatever you want and, you know, you walk in, you look at a guy that's seven foot tall, 350, 60, 70 pounds, probably could take care of himself. And, but again, these kids have never been in a fight. So, you know, like he hauls off and slaps them. A, they've never been hit like that. So they don't think it's ever going to happen. And if it does happen, it's like a video game. Well, when that happens, you know, my eyeballs will pop out of my head and back in and we'll hit the reset button and my friends will have you on video and I can sue you and I'm going to get $10 bazillion because that's what everybody does that sues people. Um, it's just a, it's just a disconnect from reality. Uh, there was a teacher, I'll stop with this. Uh, Mr. Go was a math teacher in New Brighton High School. And... Mr. Go was probably at that time well into his 50s, which was like being in your 70s today or, or older. Uh, but he was also like sort of uh, effeminate. Um, and I wasn't afraid of him. Uh, you know, if I was on the street, I wouldn't have backed down from him or anything. But I also, as a man, was respectful of the fact that he was a man and I'm a kid. And I was taught like you don't talk like that to, to adults and uh, you know, so on and so on, so forth. But, uh, you know, the kids today haven't gotten that. They've zero discipline in school, zero discipline on the street, zero discipline at home because the parents can't do it. Uh, they, they don't even respect the cops, right? Like they, you see them getting up in cops' faces and stuff. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's probably going to turn sour for them at some point in life, you know, when some big seven foot bastard comes along and decides to bring that big hand and smack you across the face. That's called what we used to call a reality check. Uh, you know, it's a, me personally, I'd rather just, you know, go in the bathroom, do my business and not have a hassle. Mm. Uh, but you know, it's, uh, uh, good question though, from, uh, from, uh, what was the first name Pete or, or no, 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 uh, this guy has no first name because my printer didn't. Oh, that's right. Out, that's so. right. That's right. This, this is the elusive name. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but good question. It, it doesn't happen nearly as often as you think, thank God. Uh, but when it did happen. Yeah, I, I, I've seen some pretty good butt kickings in the back from building security in other places. Okay, sorry, I've, I've actually got the file up now, so I can see it was Snipe Bob. So, Bob, we shall okay. call you. Thank you very much, Bob, for that question. Thank you, Bob. Right, next question is Joey Fish. Hey, guys, my question is, Shane, do you see MJF suffering a similar fate to yours in WWE were he to sign? Reason being, you had great mic skills and a hell of an edge in ECW, but maybe because of your size, the WWE just didn't utilize you in a top spot. MJF has similar qualities. Do you see him being labeled in the same fashion and underutilized by the WWE like you were? Thank you, guys. Love the show. Big fan of Shane since the old school ECW days on Empire Sports Network in New York. I mean, wow, I, I mean, saying that though, twenty twenty three is a heck of a lot different than 
1995 as far as size goes. Yeah, huge, huge differences. Um, there, you know, I, I was through my conversations over the years with friends of mine that had gone there and, and been successful there. Yeah, there's this eternal tug in my head. Like, was this an intentional thing by Vince or did this just sort of pop up? And because of the click, Vince tended to push that way. And the general consensus by the guys that were most successful up there, they said that everything Vince does is by design. So I don't think if I would have been seven foot tall or 500 pounds or, you know, the biggest human being on planet earth, that would make much of a difference. If you look back in hindsight, again, in real time, like I always talk about in that moment, uh, in ECW, I was the guy with the mic in my hand challenging the WWF and WCW champions to come to our home to shoot and, uh, you know, being pretty body in their, you know, in pointing out their products. What better way to get that big mouth and bring them up here and, and do this or that with them? Uh, so no, I don't, I don't, I think MJF is a, is a unique talent today. He stands out because he's so different from everything else going on around him, uh, that, and, and size, I mean, he's, he's no bigger or smaller than Ray Mysterio or Dominic, uh, you know, and, and, and many others up there. The industry has gone, uh, I'm, sorry, I'm just trying to say, bring my closer. Okay. I just realized. Hey, that- <laughs> you said in blue, like, I, I saw it looked like a blank piece of paper. For yeah, I'm, I'm just looking. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just telling Shade to bring his mic slightly closer, but I was trying to do are, other things, but better? it's just like blank. Yeah, it's fine. Carry on. Sorry, right. MJF, unique talent. Yeah. So yeah, very unique talent. And the, and the industry has much more downsized, although it still has some, some big monsters in it. Uh, I think he'll be successful wherever he goes. And it, I don't think he's as much of a hothead as, as I was in those days. I, uh, you know, as soon as I started seeing those paychecks, like, you know, like, like I mentioned before, my effort level went mm-hmm. way, way down. You pay me a little bit. I work a little bit. You pay me great. I kill myself. Uh, so I, I think MJF's a little bit smarter in that respect. And I look forward to that run because he is such a unique talent. And because of that, he stands out so much today. And I think on that platform, on that biggest platform in our business, he's smart enough to know how to take advantage of that. So we'll see. But its a, I have no doubt he'll end there sooner or later. I, <clears throat> excuse me, we'll move on and cough into the microphone. Lenny Vetter, <laughs> did you ever cross paths with Rowdy Roddy Piper? I know you worked together on Pro Wrestlers vs. Zombies, but did your paths ever cross in the wrestling world? Was he as much of a character off screen as he was on screen? And do you have any good Roddy Piper story? Funny, we're going to be doing TNA. Funnily enough, yeah. the episode that you main event, we'll talk about this another time, Roddy Piper's on. And also, he was part of WCW for a while. So you've crossed here and there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He First of all, my first foray to WWF in 84 uh, and, and doing jobs uh, up there. 84? Uh, 86. 86. Because it was on Superstars. It was on the first Superstars and or second Superstars, and that came out September 86. Okay, so that would have been the same year then as as you know. See how as as time goes on, it sort of compresses in my head. But it, so eighty six, uh, when we're up there, you know, you walk into that dressing room. First of all, incredibly, incredibly intimidating. You know, these first of all, most of these guys like Hogan was a big guy, Andre monster, right? That was you know, Jake six six. I mean, everybody was huge up there. Uh, uh, you know, and so you walk in there as a, as a little skinny green kid. Uh, pretty intimidating, but no, off screen, Roddy was very, very different uh, than he played on screen. And boy, on screen, he was 
magnetic, uh, just incredible to watch. But off screen, very quiet. Uh, uh, you know, he quiet not only in stature but quiet in voice. He talks with a low like this, and uh, you know, really even keeled guy. Like so, as a kid, I grew up watching this guy, right? And so you, you expect that guy when you meet him, and you go like, okay, he's a little different than that. Uh, but he. If you know anything about his upbringing and you know living on the street and all of that and getting into business as young as he was, uh, you know had a really tough, tough launching pad. And uh, you know if you again at that time Roddy was about my size, maybe a, sh sh a short bit, a bit shorter. Um, uh, but you know his his mic skills, <clears throat> and I would utilize it in a much different way and a much lesser degree later. I realized that Roddy's mic skills had transformed the business. Like it suddenly wasn't all about the holds and everything else and the counters. Um, you know, that just, like I've always said, those people you can't take your eyeballs off of. And I challenge anybody, whether you liked Roddy or didn't like his character, you could not take your eyes off of him. Uh, the Piper's Pit was what's, what, a masterful way. And I don't know if that was his idea Vince's idea, conglomeration of the two. Uh, but boy, what a showcase because wrestling had never seen that before prior to that, right? They had different segments and stuff, but like this actual set and Roddy gets to be Roddy and do this over the top stuff. And suddenly wrestling had taken on a different tone. Like it was a, a something different. Uh, yeah, I talk about Sabu as being a transformative figure in wrestling. Roddy Piper was certainly that. And we had talked before, you just uh, full disclosure before we came on the air, James said, Hey, we have a question about Roddy. Mm -hmm. And I said, Well, okay, we'll just wait. I want to hear what the question is. <clears throat> but I had recently gone back, the local theater had played uh They Live. <laughs> and I hadn't seen that movie in forever. <clears throat> so, excuse me, I uh had gone and watched it. And as I'm sitting there watching it, I, you know, I'm thinking to myself, like you know, not I would have, you almost want to say, Hey, I knew him. Like, yeah, this guy's great. But that was what struck me was even on uh, watching him on the screen in this first movie of his, uh, he inhabits that character. Like, you don't watch it and go, Okay, this is Roddy Piper playing a guy. Uh, obviously, you're very well aware if you're a wrestling fan, this is Roddy Piper, but he comes across as that character, uh, you know, Hogan always seemed like Hogan on screen, even the rock today, the rock is pretty much the same character in all the movies. Uh, but Roddy somehow had, I don't know if he had taken lessons or you know what, but he, you could, he imbued that character and uh, you rarely get the feel when you're watching him like, okay, this is Roddy Piper playing this guy. You, you, you think he's this guy uncovering these, these, uh, things, these androids, uh, he and later on pro wrestlers versus zombies what like sort of tinged my heart a bit was i'm sitting there and i'm watching roddy prepare as one of the producers i'm watching like when we're shooting his scenes and he would do this sort of uh exercise where he would walk off you know down the hall or around the corner or something and just sort like do this pacing thing back and forth <clears throat> And I finally asked him, I said, like, what are you doing? He said, well, you know, I'm running through my head, like different ways I can play this scene and you know, how, how can I make differences in it and stuff. And I thought, well, my, again, my naivete, he said, well, the, the words are written, the script's there. And, you know, the, 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 the a director allowed us to like 
change those words to like how Shane Douglas would say it. So I'm like wondering what he's doing. And I kept watching him do it. And he started to go, okay. I, I, how I said about how he imbued that character. That's what he's doing when he's going down there. He's running it through his head. And how would he play this character? Because if I played that same character, I probably would play it differently than Roddy would have played it. Um, and probably not nearly as good. Uh, but he, and it struck me. Here I am 30, 35 years later, and I'm still learning for Roddy Piper. Uh, just a, a, an amazing talent on screen. And for what we did, transformed our business and gave guys like me that would later come and get that microphone uh, it, it, just a vision of what could be, what what's something different about it, or a way to do it differently. And uh, I credit that all back to Roddy Piper. He, he's, you know, we've lost so many friends in this business, but he's one of those guys that not long before that happened, we were working on the sizzle reel for the promotion that we were working on for Las Vegas. And it was to be a press conference with Roddy and I <clears throat> talking about the announcement of this promotion. And we didn't sit and talk, okay, this is what I'm going to say. And then when you say that, that I'll say this back. There was none of that. It was just, let's go there and let's do a press conference. And so we started doing the press conference. And I know at some point I've got to get under his skin in this press conference. And so in the press conference, he keeps talking about Colton, his son. And I, you know, Stay a couple of nights. Like he says, oh, hey, yeah, Colton's a good kid. You know, and I finally say, okay, like enough about your son. Uh, we know you love your son, but like this is about this promotion, blah, blah. And he stands up and, and, and you're not sure. Like, he's, he's liable to smack you across the face. He's liable to punch you in the face. Uh, and you're just, you know, so you respond by standing up next to him. And he does that thing with his head and reaches down, picks the water up, looks at it, and throws it in my face. Completely unplanned. And there was a split second of my brain where I thought, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, this, this wasn't in the script. You're not supposed to do that. And no, wing it. Let's just go with it and do it. And by time the pull apart comes like right after, like we, you know, settle down, the cameras are stopped. We go, uh, go you know, just to make sure everything was okay. And he was still coming down from that. Like it was mm -mm, like, like you just see like the, the tension dropping. And I wasn't sure if he liked it or not. He turned around and grabbed me. And pulled me and gave me a hug. And I was like, I'm guessing he liked that, you know? And uh, the fact that I could even stand in that same shot as Roddy Piper uh, is pretty damn cool to me. And it, just a few weeks later, but the epitaph to that is at that shoot, I had to go back to the hotel to get a, a belt that we'd left at the hotel. And I came back, they were now shooting the next scene. And I asked the director, where's Roddy? And he said, he's in the bathroom. So I, you know, they're, they're in the process of shooting. So I walked down and I walked past the women's room and into the men's room and look in the stalls. There's no, the lights are off and nobody's there. So as I'm walking out, I see a light under the women's door. So, you know, we had run in the building. We're the only people in the building. <clears throat> so I go up and knock on the door and he goes, go away. I said, Roddy, it's Shane. One locks real quick. He pulls me in close and locks the door. And for a split second, <clears throat> I'm thinking, what's he doing in here? Like, why is the door locked? You know, I'm wondering, like, is he doing drugs or something? Like, why? I mean, why is the door? We're the only people in the building. And the same thing, he's pacing back and forth across this room. And he said, uh, I'm really proud of what you're doing here. And I said, Roddy, it wouldn't have happened if you, if you were. And he said, no, 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 hear me out. He said, I want you to be you know, really proud of what you're doing here. You're trying to give the boys someplace else to work. 
and he said, please promise me they'll take care of my son. And I'm like, Roddy, don't. and he grabbed me by my shoulder and he squeezed. He said, Shane, please promise. I said, done. Don't mention it again. And that was last time we spoke at that shoot. Two weeks later, I get the text from Colton. I'm in Chicago at the Odium that uh, he tried calling and I was tied up. And I get the text uh, that his dad had passed away. And it really struck me because he looked so healthy and so vibrant at that last show. Uh, that was a million miles. The last thing in the world I was thinking of with Roddy. And in hindsight, I'm wondering in that last conversation, did he notice something? Was he experiencing or feeling something? Because I'd never seen Roddy like in that philosophical mode, at least with me. Um, and it seemed like he let that guard down just enough to show me the real him, you know, and since, you know, I, I of course had met uh, Kitty a long, long time before that. And, uh, several times since, and, and then had met Colton, who was just a, you know, a, a baby. Uh, but you know, then, you know, grown and was involved in the shoot fighting and then his daughters and, and you know, what I, I think we're like, our children are reflections of us in, in some respect. And when you meet his kids, uh, top notch, all of them top notch kids. And so, you know, uh, you know, for Roddy, uh, brief time here, a job well done, amazing job in our business, amazing job as a father and, and a husband. And you know, I'm, I'm glad to have been able to have had those conversations and experiences with them. And a fine tribute to him as well. Bill Miller asks on January 14th, 2001, WCW had a pay-per-view in Indianapolis, Indiana, titled WCW Sin. You're on the card defending the United States Championship versus General Rection. Bill DeMott, the worst name in the world. What was your thoughts on the match? And what was it like working in Indianapolis? And what were your thoughts on the Sid Vicious injury? So this is the pay-per-view where he snaps. It's like, we'll leave that to last, but uh, the thoughts on the match with uh, Bill DeMott, General Rection. But, oddly enough, I didn't know until that night because I knew Bill well right at, from at that point, and he had told me after the match that he had had a match with me in ECW. I didn't even remember being there in ECW. There were you know there were a lot of people that come in and get tryouts and would be there and and then gone. Um, but we in that match, there there uh, you know Bill was always solid to work with. You know, rarely stiff, snug like like ECW was, um, and we're on the floor fighting, and the table is on the floor leaning against the railing, and you know we tease it, and he eventually ends up reversing and throwing me through it. And my recollections was of this looks so cartoonish, fake because as oddly enough, it, it cut me. It looks like I've had an appendectomy because it cut me right where you'd have the appendectomy. And it's a, you know, the formica on that table, when it gets split like that, could be sharp as a razor. And it's a clean cut right across. And I'm bleeding, you know, from, from that. But I look at the table afterwards, and it's like a cartoon cut out of me. <laughs> it's gone through the table. It, it, it looks just so fake because of that. Um, but I always thought Indianapolis was a great town to work in. Uh, but it, by this time, it, like... I grew up in Pittsburgh, obviously, and, and Pittsburgh was what we consider a wrestling town. And I think there's a lot of those around uh, the country. But as I've, you know, by the time 
we're talking now in the nine, 90s and, and 2000, we're, you know, we're, the business has hit this stride, this monster scale. And because of that, because largely because of the WWF, uh, there was, you know, everybody was, every town was a wrestling town suddenly. And, uh, you know, going into Indianapolis, because again, I think it's a, it, the sports town, you know, Pittsburgh's a sports town. New York's a sports town. You know, you have Atlanta's a sports town. You, know, you go to Chicago and Indianapolis and lots of these places that where you have a big sports contingency and successful sports teams seem like wrestling would always do just a little bit better in those towns. Uh, and the fans were, you know, much like the Pittsburgh Steeler fans that everybody hates, right? Uh, because they're successful. Uh, they bring that sports oomph that sports uh, uh vivacious uh, you know energy that they would bring to a Colts game or you know Steelers game they bring to the wrestling uh arena and they, because of the way we do what we do it being set up and it's a you know it's a a, a sports entertainment that uh that it's almost by design okay ready because here's gonna come the pop right here boom and there's the pop uh so we know how the, the as performers we know what to do to maximize that in certain places in Indianapolis. In my recollection, when I think of wrestling towns and the towns that I used to love going to, Indianapolis was was one of those because the fans brought that fervor with them. Um, the the Sid injury, uh, I I didn't see it live, really? uh, and, and the reason is as I was sitting there with uh, Scott Steiner and. I had turned my head. We were talking, and I had turned my head to answer. And everybody, Scott, and everybody, oh, you know, I jumped and like, like, like the big flinch. And I right away turn around and I see you sit down. I'm thinking, like, what, what, take a bad bump? And yes, he Scott did. starts going, <laughs> oh, oh, his leg, his leg, his leg. Right. And then they start showing the replay. And it's, I've seen a few of those. Well, been, when I, we were in the ring in ECW. Me and Pitbull were working, and then we had the uh, BWO come out, and we had uh, uh, there was a new kid from the school that wrestled like built sort of like Abdul the Butcher and wore mm -hmm. the pointed boots. He was supposed to, in the school he could do the elbow off the top rope. Um, was supposed to do that, but he had never done it in front of a live crowd, so he hesitated for a second, and then now his momentum's already going, so he tries at the last second readjust and make it. Same thing. I'm turned. I've got Anthony in the uh, Pitbull 2 in the full Nelson. And I hear it sounded like a, 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 a professional baseball bat snapping. And there's a lag and then this ungodly curdle. You know, just, just, this, this guttural, guttural scream. And, uh, you know, later, of course, seen on video. So when I saw the Sid video later. Of course, it immediately beckons you back to the Joe Theismann break and, you know, mm -hmm. Ab Abdullah's break and, you know, the, all these different things. And you see it and, uh, you know, it's for Sid, like as tall as he is, uh, he, you know, had that big upper body and uh, legs weren't quite as big. Right. But he had long legs because of how tall he is. And to me, that was like, you know, again, it's just a basic physics lesson right when you come off and you have 300 pounds coming off and you know it takes 12 pounds to break a bone and land in just the right way and boom she's gone uh he still has a bit of a noticeable difference in his gait today uh not not very pronounced but 
for a long time after that, he obviously did. And that's, that's a very, you know, just my medical school training. That's a, that's a really, really bad break. And, and for a guy as tall as him and, you know, long tibia, uh, that's a long, uh, a long bone and, and very difficult to heal. So, you know, he's, he's like, and those kind of breaks, it's not often, but it can happen where it needs to be, uh, amputated, mm. you know, modern medicine, modern orthopedics have, have gotten better at fixing that with internal rods and things. But, uh, you know, that's a, that was a really, really serious break. And one of those things that's just, when you look back and I, I don't mean to laugh, like laughing about the injury, but just the, uh, the, I, I remember the reaction from the dressing room as I turned my head like an idiot the perfect time. Right. Uh, just like everybody watching the monitor did this, like, Whoa, like this explosive, something bad happened. And, uh, and Scott Steiner, who's usually pretty stoic, you know, had that, like that look on his face. I can't even mimic where it was just, you know, like, you know, he had seen something that was pretty ghastly and he starts describing it before they start showing the replay. Uh, but yeah, horrible, horrific. Uh, I'm going to bring up two things here. Uh, the, it, it was Kareem Horton, the guy from ECW, and the reason that I Kareem, actually, yeah. uh, I actually looked up our, our interview that we talked about that on the old channel, uh, on the old channel, the current channel, but you know the main channel. The other <laughs> thing is with the Sid leg break. So this is very salient and also involves your pal John Laurinaitis, because apparently he was the one who insisted that Sid do this move like some sort of like kick off the top or off the second whatever it was and then he mm. landed on one leg and then it snapped and sid kept Didn't saying know oh really oh uh, so, no. so, so the story is is that sid got the director from johnny ace and and john either representing probably representing wcw as a whole said no we really mm -hmm. want you to do this sid said look i'll do it but if it goes wrong on your head be it it goes wrong and then sid successfully sues wcw or turner uh, for mm, compensation, I, yeah. Any idea how much he got? Dutch has claimed five million. I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure about that whatsoever. But I, I hear that he sued and successfully sued. Yeah, they they were rife. Uh, Paul played that sort of like a weapon against them. Uh, they would do something, say something, and Paul would threaten lawsuit and. They would respond. That was how we got Bobby. That was how we got uh, Ryan Pillman. How we got Arn Anderson. Arn Steve Austin was supposed to come, but I think he hurt his knee, and so Arn came uh, because Paul would just threaten a lawsuit, and they would roll over on it. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe Missy Hyatt sued or threatened to sue and received a, a pretty sizable because they had put in the CNN Center a picture of her like that was taken from video and it was like down in the main area, like where they had the food court and all of that. And uh, the picture, just the way the picture was taken and stopped when it was her dress or top or whatever had been pulled aside and her boob was showing. And, and again, like we said earlier on a different episode about, uh, you know, the, the overt cocaine mm. usage in, 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 in the NWA program. Whoever said, "Hey, this, hey, let's freeze it right here. Let's take this picture from the video and put it in a public place, without talking to her first, or just assuming that maybe not a good idea." Uh, but I, I really find it hard to believe that that was something that somebody 
you know, some low level tech somewhere in the company said, Hey, let's do this and put it out there. Um, but I know, I know she was talking about a lawsuit at that time and then suddenly it disappears. I don't know if, if it went to lawsuit, if she was given settlement before or after, but that was another place that that kind of stuff happened. And, you know, it's just, just a little common sense mm. would tell you probably not, not good to proceed that way. And with Sid, you know, doing them anytime you're asked to do a move that you've not worked on, I don't care if it's a simple suplex or a throw of some kind. The answer I always tell people that I'm working with, if you don't feel comfortable with something, please say it here. No harm, no foul. I'd much rather you tell me that and me come up with something else than you say, I don't want the franchise to think I'm afraid to take this or whatever. And then God forbid something like that happen. Um, you know, so it's uh, if he sued and, and and won a chunk of money, and he was told to do something he, you know, shouldn't have done or wasn't well versed in doing, you know, because we've all watched ten thousand wrestling matches, um, and you see, seemingly it happens and it always happens without injury. Well, there's a couple different things going on. First of all, we're well versed and trained in what we do, uh, and we still get hurt. But the promotion also has a vested interest in concealing your injury because you're a figure that they've invested money in. And they want, if you're booked at a main event next month in Charleston, West Virginia, they don't want Charleston. Well, ah, Shane's hurt. He's not going to be here. Um, so that's the second thing. But the third thing is, is like on the realistic side of it, what we do, and I think most of us understand this, it, it, there is real danger in what we do. And, you know, we're not swallowing swords or jumping out of a plane without a parachute. But, you know, we are going out there and semantically attempting to do something to make you believe something that's not really happening. And if you're not well-versed in that, uh, think of Francine's bump through the table, the power bump through the table. You know, she's not got the heft or the meat to protect herself. And that's a hard bump for anybody. And, you know, they did the, you know, if you watch closely, uh, Anthony's knees go through the table first. And like, there's, you know, he's, he's doing the best he can to protect her. I don't care. She's 102 pounds with 10 pound dumbbells in her hands. It, it, she, that's a hell of a bump. And, uh, there was not for comparison, but later in XPW, when I was working with, uh, uh, Rob's wife, um, let me see. Hi, Lizzie, Lizzie Borden. Yeah. Uh, she, was asked to take a bump and it was to be power bombed from the ring down to the table at ringside. She was not a worker. So I told her, don't do it. You know, it's, it's too dangerous of a bump and that's a hard bump period. And during the match, I, it comes up and there she goes. And when he throws her, she goes like the table's about a foot off the apron. And she went right down between like her body folded up and went, literally right through the split and threw down to the concrete and she ended up breaking some ribs. Uh, and so she had to take a train back to California because she couldn't fly for like a month. And, you know, it's a point taken what you, we've seen injuries, you know, God forbid draws. And then there was the other uh, kid that, that got hurt in the rockers match way back. Sid's leg uh, the, the injuries happen all the time and the company will, oftentimes conceal it. Of course you couldn't conceal that, but being asked to do a move, uh, that you're not trained to do and you've never done, uh, 
you know, the moral of the lesson is right there. And uh, lucky for luck, happy for him that he was able to get money from the company because they put him up to doing that. Mm. Next question, George Carl, a name I recognise from the Dutch show, Clearwater, Florida. You made a good point that you, the Shane Douglas character, is different from Troy Martin, the person. In the 1990s, I ran into Randy Savage many times. He lived near to where I worked and was always the gravel voice macho man. I've heard that he actually did morph into the macho man 24-7, and I can believe it. Do you know any others that actually lived their life as their character? Thanks. Yeah, Sonny, Ric Flair, for sure. Um... Uh, the, those two come to mind because I've, I've mentioned them before. Uh, I think Chris Benoit, I think towards the end was beginning to, and I, I don't know if that's attributable to the CTE, uh, but I wasn't around him a ton like I had been before uh, based on things that I've heard and the stories that I've heard of things going on. It seemed from left field to me. I'd never seen Chris exhibit those types of things when I was around him. And I think that becomes a dangerous thing, you know, where uh, if I was playing Prince Charming, if I was playing Hannibal Lecter, if I was, you know, if you start taking on those, those traits and start imbuing that, I, I think there's a tendency in our business to think, okay, well, I've been more successful as this character than I've been in any of those other characters. And there's also a part of us, I think, that wants to conceal away the real uh, suddenly, like I don't want people looking at Troy Martin. Like, if you live next door to me, stay away from him. He throws people down with broken necks. Um, you know, and 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 conflating those two and, and mixing them up. Uh, and so I, I've always made the conscious decision and effort to not portray those characters, that character, overtly. You know, when I'm around, and and I don't want to be that guy. He's I, the way I've always played in my head. This guy is a vicious narcissistic big-headed jackass of a human being but i played him that way that's he's supposed to piss the audience off that's he's the antagonist and uh you know i i think for those of us that do separate them off when you meet the people like I, I mentioned roddy a, a few questions ago <clears throat> for the fans if you're meeting if you met him and you were expecting Rowdy Roddy Piper. Yeah, you aren't going to get that guy. That's not the guy's going to show up and talk to you. Uh, you'll probably have an incredible conversation with him and enjoy the hell out of it, but it ain't going to be that guy. And uh, you know, I, I'd heard that about Mach, uh, uh Randy. Uh, I of course knew him, but knew him as somebody at work. Never really sort of like crossed the paths or traveled with him or anything. Um, I did get to know him a lot better after he died in the sense that like listening to Lanny talk about him as a big brother and, and, you know, and, and, uh, Rip Morgan, uh, also, and you, and you hear in those stories, like a real love and a real, you know, affection to this guy, respect. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there, there are a handful. I, I think Rick Flair has forgotten who Richard Flair is. Um, and I, and I don't know why it's, it seems strange to me because Richard Flair ultimately is the guy that created that character. And so like, I, I would seem to think like you'd want to play the homage and, you know, and, and full dis uh, respect for Rick, maybe when he's around his family, maybe he's, you know, really got that guard up high. I don't know. Uh, it just seems like, you know, when you're Ric Flair, when you're the nature boy, anytime you're out in public, everything's cameras are on you. Everybody's gonna be talking to 
you know, paying attention. If you're in the restaurant, you know, everybody's like, you know, eating their dinner and like keeping their eye on them, you know, watching them. Uh, I think I, I can melt into the background a lot easier. And, and I re- appreciate that, but there are a few of those people that have done that, um, that sort of throw that up. It, it, uh, like I said, to conceal like the, the real selves, I'm, you know, like, uh, there's a real person behind that character and, and, and the person that plays those like Sonny, uh, Tammy, I haven't seen the Tammy that I remember meeting way back in ECW. I haven't seen that girl uh, because we would often talk about things. She had said to me one time that she was also accepted to medical school. And I, so I okay, one would quiz her because you know if if you're if you were accepted to medical school, you would certainly know what this is or that is or Krebs cycle is. Uh, those uh, little those little inside things that the average person walking down the street wouldn't. And she did. She knew all of them. So you know we would have long, deep conversations, not just about wrestling, about current events about you know the world about whatever and when i the last several times that i've seen her uh i think the last time i saw her in person was at wrestlecade two years ago and you know same bubbly smile you know all the hello how you hug all, you know, all that was there but again talking to her i was talking to sunny it wasn't tammy lynn sitch and uh you know, I, I, you know, I think the the moral of that story is like, read into that. You know, look look at it and see like what the outcome of that is. And and I'm more than content to keep that guy on the shelf, except when I need him, uh, and and quite comfortable with that. So yeah, it, it does happen, and, and it can happen. And I think that's a, and probably not just in our business. I'm sure there's probably people that have played large roles uh, in, in movies or stage plays or whatever that sort of like I've, I've heard like read about different actors that say their character smokes in the movie or smokes in the, uh, and then suddenly that actor is smoking, you know, picking up that habit, uh, uh fine line. Got to keep those two separate. Next question, Nick lens. And I, I hate to say, I don't know the story behind this and I feel like I should do Shane. How did you get the nickname, the franchise? Ah, yeah. It's a, well, I, I don't know. Was this episode or the last episode we talked about, uh, the 93, when the NFL started delineating the franchise player to each team, mm-hmm. which was then, that was a, a legal delineation as well as, you know, the, the fans all thought it was like, hey, they're the most important player, they're the best player on the team. No, what that meant was from a legal standpoint was you are recognized on this team as being the best on the team. And, and as such, your contract had to then be the average of the top five contracts in that position. So if you were a quarterback and you got the franchise moniker, uh, then let's say you were making $1 a year and the top 10 or the top five uh, quarterbacks made an average of $55 million a year. Well, yours had to be 55 million and one. You had to be the top paid in that field. So it was legal delineation. And right as we'd started ECW in the fall of 93, was right when this was happening. So it was like big news in the, in the, uh, uh, in the sports world. And Paul came to me and said, I, uh, got this idea. Uh, he had been friends with Lawrence Taylor and he said, I have this idea where, you know, uh, uh you're going to be the franchise player. You're like the, we're going to delineate the company's going to delineate you as the franchise player for the, for the company. And 
you're the captain of the quarterback. You're, you're, you're the captain of the football team that steals everybody's uh, girlfriend and screws them. And well, I knew guys like that, you know, they had done that kind of stuff. And uh, by the way, Troy Martin, Shane Douglas would definitely do it. Troy Martin wouldn't. Uh, so that was the only direction. And then as it got close to launching this character, he said, okay, I want you to like, like, like one night, cause he knew I knew Yarmar Yager and, uh, Barry uh, uh, Olamu, uh, some different people, uh, Andy Russell, some old Steelers, uh, J- Jack Lambert, and he his thinking was okay tonight. You go to the ring wearing Lawrence Taylor's jersey or Mario Lemieux's jersey or uh, Yarmir Yager's jersey. And I, I spun when he said that, and I said, "Do you want this character babyface or heel?" Because I had assumed heel, and he said, "Yes, heel." I said, "Well, wouldn't he expect?" Lawrence Taylor to wear his jersey? Wouldn't he expect Mario Lemieux to wear his jersey? And that's when Paul stepped back and went, you get the character. Um, and so that was his incarnation, his thought of that character, which I think played out would have really, you know, by the way, that's Tommy Dreamer. When Tommy goes to a new town and wear the Pittsburgh Steelers jersey or the you know, <laughs> Buffalo Bills jersey or whatever. And uh, yeah, Tommy, I just took a shot at you. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so those smarmy baby faces, right? Um uh, so yeah, that's, that, that was the direction of the character. That's where it came from. And then that, then it would play out as, uh, uh, you know, I came up with the idea for the triple threat and put that first incarnation together. And that was where the perfect strangers came from. It had been Chris Benoit's became the triple threats. They left and then it sort of became mine. Thank God, because how, are you going to go my way by Lenny Kravitz, which is a great song. I love Lenny Kravitz, but it just doesn't fit the franchise character. Next question. I'm going to leave this in the show. Uh, can you tip your microphone slightly towards you? You don't have to move it, but if you, it, you know, just, I'll tell you what, the, the, we, there's a ramshackle setup over there. I need to get your better yes. blue mic and stuff like that. But like Chris has attached it to like the flimsiest card table, so everything's yeah. like yeah. everything's about to like just tip over if something if anything's <laughs> shifted. But anyway, next question: Noah Hungry from someplace Al Snow is from in Ohio. I've heard Rob Van Dam talk about asking Taz to pick a hand because that was going to be the one that Rob would slap the shit out of him with. (laughs) I was wondering if Rob ever asked Shane to pick a hand or if Shane has witnessed Rob asking another wrestler to pick a hand. And if he has seen Rob ask someone to pick a hand, who was it and did they get slapped? We must remain perfect strangers. (laughs) Great question. I, I didn't see any of that. I'd heard the story like everybody's heard the story. Um, Rob is a, he's a tough kid, right? And he'll stick up for himself. And and I saw vestiges of that in WCW, like early on, not that he had to get in anybody's face, but if somebody had wronged him, he would like, boom, go right up to him and take care of it. I, I always got along with that. Like, I, I respect that. You know, it's, I tell people all the time, James, if somebody comes and goes, Hey man, Shane Douglas was talking shit behind your back. Call him a liar right to their face. Cause if I got something to say to you, I'm going to come right to you and say it. Uh, and I always respected that of Robbie, uh, I say, I say, Robbie, like, you know, it, he's a kid to me, right? Well, it was, it was, uh, well, he was Robbie. He was Robbie V in WCW. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's probably the right, right thing right. to call him, at least in, at, at that time frame. Yeah. But he was, I mean, even on himself, like, if you go through and watch, there were times when he would do dives out, like, on Bammer, and he would, like, bounce off Bammer and, you know, take a slap hard bump on the concrete, uh, get right up from that, you know. And uh, uh, Rob and I worked, as I recall, one time, singles match in the in ECW that was in 
Alabama. I mean, it was like a weird out of the way place. And, uh, he hard weighed me in the match and I uh, came back and apologizing. I said, no, dude, like, it was a great match. Um, and, uh, we always, I've always got along great with Rob. Uh, we, we've always had like a, uh, I know where he's coming from and I know what he always committed to the business and, uh, you know, have always enjoyed, you know, watching him, you know, like the, you know, it's just fun to watch him. And because he's so capable in the ring of doing that stuff and, and doing it differently than other people before him do it. Uh, that, that to me, it was like what my takeaway from Robbie, I'd heard the story with Taz. Um, if there was a problem between him and Taz, I'm sure he would have gone up and, and, uh, certainly stood his ground with him. Um, but I, I wasn't privy to that and I never saw Rob do that. Although I did see Rob, you know, stand his ground on things and, 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 you know, and stake his claim. Uh, and again, for me, that was always refreshing. I always respected that one guys. Next question. So pumpkin splice says in 1996, a few old Japan guys made, uh, he's written, made appeared, made appearances in ECW. Was there ever a thought of having Johnny Ace come in and wrestle you? No, uh, there, the only time I remember Johnny Ace interacting <clears throat> with ECW is, first of all, a little known fact, and I think I might have mentioned it on here on our show before. I never was able to get anybody hired in, w, in ECW. Excuse me. I had Cody Michaels was my roommate in college. We remain best friends to this day. Uh, I brought him in. I worked with him. had a good match with him in the arena. And... Uh, couldn't was wasn't able to get him in. Didn't notice it at the time. You know, Paul and I had a had a good working relationship as far as ECW went. You know, sitting down and saying, "Okay, this is what we need tonight," and can can you do this or do that? Uh, but I think Paul probably knew it long before I did because it wasn't I disliked Paul. I don't think Paul and I got along well. Um, different kinds of people and. Uh, uh, I think, which is why the reason why, like every time I, you know, I would always get, you know, that, that hold on finger. Um, and, and I started like, imbu like parsing that character out the way I thought. Hmm. And, and, and that was enjoyable to me. They, they gave me some direction over the character. Um, he, uh, uh, he, he was more hands off with my character and as it were, in ECW, um, the uh, what, what was the second part of that question? Uh, so a few the, old Japan guys came in nineteen ninety six. So why did Johnny Ace never come to ECW? Yeah, so he Johnny Ace had come. We were in Florida, which he lived in Florida. We uh, I want to say Kissimmee, but he had come to the hotel. We were staying in Orlando, and I was at a different hotel, of course, because I always stayed away from the guys, and uh, Franny and I would so that we could kayfabe. But Paul had me go to his hotel because Johnny was coming for an interview. And so I went, and as I recall in the meeting, Johnny had gone in and was basically telling Paul, you know, okay, well, if you hire me, then I'm going to bring these guys in, and you know, it's going to be my crew and whatever. And I I knew as soon as he was saying it, there's no way Paul's going to go for this, right? It's, uh, you know, Paul, the, the, the crew that Paul had, A, Paul was loyal to, and he had put with in fairness, a lot of time and money and effort into. 
uh, you know, he, he was the type of booker that was, had to, because of where we were as size wise, he had to get everybody on the card over. So you get a, a, a character like Mikey Whipwreck, right? The lovable loser, um, but somehow keeps winning. Uh, well, that took time and money and, uh, you know, an effort to put into that. And it took a lot of effort from, from Mikey. So, or John. And, uh, so it, it, for us was, uh, a guy I knew, knew just like hearing him saying that and could probably read Paul's face pretty much that, that this was going nowhere, but it was never about a match. Um, Johnny fit really well in Japan. A, a couple of different, first of all, Mrs. Baba loved him and, <laughs> Johnny was, you know, he had been a businessman. He'd worked for Honeywell before he came into the business. So he had, you know, learned, you know, the office politics as it were. And uh, so he knew like getting good with Mrs. Bob was a good thing to do. But Johnny also has a photographic memory in the sense that if you sit down and say, okay, here's a 20 minute finish, which is what Japan does. Here's your, you have 25 minutes, but 23 of it's finish. <laughs> you know, so pretty much laying the whole thing out. I learned to work the old school way, like where you're going to work it in the ring. It's like you play it where it lays and, uh, and really didn't want to learn, you know, 20 minute finishes. Um, so because of those two things, Mrs. Baba and well, three things, actually, the fact that Johnny could memorize those finishes. He also became a good finish guy from, from learning from that. And he could go over to Japan and make in 20 weeks a year, what, somebody in the States would make in 52 weeks a year. And so that's, I think large, largely why Johnny spent most of his career, especially those, those formative years in Japan, because he had those, those gifts to be able to do those things. And I think a lot of what he took into the WWE as the executive Johnny Ace, uh, he learned in Japan. And when he first got his first job in WCW as the office guy, he came in and he didn't know any of the wrestlers. I mean, very few of us. And so he and I would have breakfast on TV days and he would say, okay, uh, what does Ranger Ross do? How do I, like, you know, and I'd say, okay, well, he wrestles this way and you know, maybe come over finish like this or like that. Um, and that, that was like a daily thing on television days. And so again, like Johnny having that memory, like he does and being able to remember long, long-term things like that. And, and sequentially, uh, he was able to go to the WWF E and make, you know, make a good executive in, in the Vince McMahon mold, because it's uh, my tendency is to become friends in the camaraderie of the guys. I, I enjoy that aspect of it. Johnny having coming from Honeywell and then in Japan and then bringing that in WCW and then later WWE, he comes from a, it's not a judgmental thing. It's not a good, my way is good and his is bad or vice versa. He comes from, you work for us. I'm your boss. Here's what I need. There's no emotion here. So if I could let you go and fire you, no hard feelings, James, but boom, see, we'll, you know, we'll call you if we have anything. And to him, that's just a continuation of that. And, and, and again, like I've, I've heard a lot of stories about Johnny and, and you can, I'm sure uh, gauge which way those stories go from guys that worked up there. <clears throat> and I try to explain to them afterwards, like it's not that I'm saying what he did was fine or you shouldn't have treated you that way or whatever. 
But that's where Johnny Ace is coming from. That's where John Laurinaitis is coming from. He, it, it, it's business. You know, any job, real job I've ever had that I was let go from, or I had to tender a resignation to, or whatever, there was nobody going. Oh, please stay! Like, come on, stay! Like, okay, great. That's sorry, sorry as ego, but that's <laughs> to bring in. It's business to Johnny. I think we've got time for two more. We'll see how we go. Uh, Genus Hammer. Now, he's actually written quite a long thing here. I'm going to condense this now, apart from the fact that he says I love the podcast. Um, he asked when you went to WCW in 1999. He mentions Flair, of course, uh, but he also mentions issues, obviously, with the click a few years earlier. But he specifically wants to know if there are any issues with you going back to WCW 1999 with Kevin Nash or Scott Hall. No. Um, uh, Scott and I uh, had... At some time after that, <clears throat> and I honestly am thankful for this, uh, four or five years ago, maybe six, I pandemic post-pandemic time, I've lost all track of like the condensation of time. Um, but he was at a Scott Demore show. Uh, we were both at a Scott Demore show up in Canada. And I was down at ringside in the afternoon you know, working out with the kids and uh, I hear somebody yell my name and I look and it's Scott Hall standing at the front door. And he's going, it's okay if I come over. Yeah, sure. Come on over. You know, so he came over and hey, he looked great. That was the first thing I said to him. Hey, he looked fantastic. And uh, he was saying, Hey man, like, and, and Kevin had said, we'd been on a show uh, up in Detroit some, sometime before that. And he came in and uh, he said, uh, are we cool? I said, yeah, why? He said, well, you know, a lot of heat with the click. And I just want to let you know that dude is water to the bridge. I mean, you know, 10 years ago. And uh, so Kevin and I have gotten along great. And, and I'm thankful that for Scott, before he passed away, that we had that chance to, to put that behind us. Uh, uh, Sean Waltman and I, we've always gone along fairly well. And uh, with Hunter, it's been sort of like, you know, it, it, not that you run into Hunter often, but like I, I'd gone to the WWE show at one point and it was a bit of a strange vibe there, but he said hello, I said hello, and that was sort of like the end of it. Um, the one person I haven't spoken to is, is Sean, and like I, I've said it a thousand times, balls in his court. Mm. You know, it's uh, I didn't go up there and do stuff to them, that, you know, so, uh, but I, I think, I, like I said earlier about, you know, being on the downside of my life's ladder, I, you know, I, I've learned a long time ago. Uh, that, you know, it, it's a lot better to stand your ground for damn sure, uh, state your peace. But, you know, the long standing stuff, and people told me this at the time I was too thick headed to get it. Uh, it's just going to chew you up, you know, so it's uh, balls in his court. I, I'll respond accordingly to, to that. But, uh, yeah, so, but, but to get back to the question in WCW, there was never any kind of overt issue with those two. And I think what, probably stuck you know kept that from occurring was there was the musical chairs in the in the booking committee right so there was you know bischoff's in one day then he's out and russo's in then russo and bischoff are together and then this one's gone and that one's gone and this one's now coming in it was just like the musical chairs, so nobody ever really had the chance to like get the hegemony mm -hmm. over the over the company uh to be able to play that kind of click stuff so at least from from where i stood yeah uh, I'll, I'll just follow up with that very briefly. Did you ever, obviously, 
Scott Hall was a lot later on. And Scott wouldn't really be in WCW very much in 99 and 2000 anyway. But with Kevin Nash, did you ever have any sit-down conversation with Kevin in WCW at that time? No. And, and other than just that sort of overt, like, are, are we cool? And, you know, uh, you know, he acknowledged that what they did was bullshit. And uh, and I, I, that's why I said, dude, like, water under the bridge, you know. it's. Uh, but, I, I, but even at the time, like, when it was going on, as I've told the stories, you, you can hear me say, like, Kevin pushing back. Like when was Sean when Sean wanted to do the thing in Montreal, there was like this attempt by Kevin, like okay, yeah, but Vince, well, well screw what Vince wants, and even like when he's face to face with Carl, uh, you know, Sean behind his, you know, doing the pantomime behind Carl's blind eye, uh, you could see like there was a, a, it was almost like having to pull teeth out of Kevin. It was like. I'm thinking like he was resisting the good in him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was like like trying to push it down, Uh, but you know he's I like I'd always because I'd done again. I knew these guys well before going up there that time. It was there was no reason to have any concern to it. But when I first met Kevin in WCW some years before, as Oz or whatever different incarnation, we would often talk about Detroit sports pittsburgh sports you know just just a really down-to-earth guy and uh never and even like at post click i could honestly say like i don't re- like when i tell the stories of, of the things that happened there rarely does it entail if ever does it entail well kevin did this or that or the other thing it's usually centered mostly around scott and and uh sean and uh like i said scott was man enough to come up and Hey, hey, dude! Like, sorry about what happened. Just want to put it behind us, and you know that. You know, it was just, you know, it was it was a time to do that, and and it felt good to be able to do that because, you know, there's some part of you when you experience like the things that we've experienced. It's such a small sliver of the population. Uh, we're blessed to have had the opportunities we've had in this business, and whether it was for a month, a year, ten years. That, that time that you spend, that's a, I don't know about anybody else, but for me, that was an incredibly special time in my life. And, uh, I don't want to look back on that and, 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 and be dour about it. Uh, you know, a lot of times we were on the road with, you know, he would jump in with me and Johnny where we were laughing our asses off a lot of times doing that. And I much prefer to remember those memories over top of the, this or that or the other thing, but those have been dealt with. We had spoken about those and then put them behind. So good. And we'll end on this question. Steph from PA. That is Pennsylvania, isn't it, for God's sake? Yes. Mm -hmm. Good. Hello, Shane. I'm a huge Mr. Perfect fan. I wanted to know what you thought about the greatest wrestler to ever live, in my opinion, Kurt Hennig. Other than the plain rib, are there any other good rib stories you have about Kurt? In fact, do you know what? I mean, when was the last time you told the plain rib? Maybe we should... I I think I know which one that is. You'll have to tell it. Oh, the the, the plain rib is... uh... We had gotten, we would, the WWF would fly you from wherever to the West Coast. And you would typically do Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland. You just work your way up the coast. And the last night would always be in Yakima, Washington, which was a good two hours or so from the SeaTac Airport, Seattle Airport. And so you'd work and you'd have to jump right in the car, sweaty and stinky and fly back because the red eye flight, if you missed it, you had to wait till the next day. <clears throat> I was always lucky because whatever red eye flight typically went through Pittsburgh. 
So mine was usually one hop, and then everybody else had to connect and go up there, there, you know, to get home. So we're sitting in the Seattle airport. <clears throat> now, at this time, me, Marty, Sean, and Dustin are traveling together. And, you know, the four of us at this time didn't, you know, throw a winter jacket on and a hat on. You look like four guys sitting there. You didn't look like Meanwhile, you got the warrior and your root and you got some big guys right over here at the at the gate. And uh Warrior, bless his heart, he always wanted to inhabit that character. I mean, even changed his name, right? It was one of the ones we missed in that question. Mm -hmm. But uh Jim would walk around with the ribbon, you know, the ultimate warrior ribbons on his arms and you know, monster that he was. And these four three guys and a girl come in, they've been partying to bar or whatever. The flights are like 1.30 in the morning, you know, really crack early. And uh, they come in and they sit down and they, they don't know. We're four wrestlers are sitting right across from us. And we're at the gate across the hall from the flight where all these big guys are, these big wrestlers. And they all sort of oh, look at those, those steroids and acting like monkeys and, you know, just making fun of them. <laughs> and man, of, of those three, let me ask you, of those three, who took that bait? I mean, of the four, which person in our group decided to take that bait from these three, right? Sean, or Marty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Marty leans in and goes, hey, you guys like the party? And I knew as soon as he said it, what he's doing, right? And it's the time of GHB, the, the date rape drug. Uh, so, you know, when you started taking that, you're supposed to take like half a scoop. And it was a little tiny, probably about as big as round as my finger, my pinky nail. And, you know, about that deep is a, a little tiny scoop. Pull. I mean, when you start, you're supposed to like build up to a full scoop because if you took this and tried to stay awake, uh, within 20, 25 minutes, it was like drinking a case of beer in two minutes. Like you went from sober to, and it gave you a nasty, a nasty, nauseous feeling. But if you took it and went to bed, it was a great fat burner. It really worked. And, uh, so Marty, hey, guys like the party? Well, of course, these four knuckleheads are sure we like the party. So he divvies out a couple scoops each to these guys, right? And I'm thinking, like, Marty, <laughs> back off a hair. And like I told you, it takes about 20, 25 minutes to kick in. So he get all four drink it down. And uh, five minutes later, he goes, guys feeling anything? I'm like, no, no, yeah, yeah. Better give, some, <laughs> give some, some more. I'm like, God, Marty, like, take it easy, you know? We get on the plane, and I'm in the very last row of the plane. It's a double-wide plane, two aisles. I'm in the very last aisle seat on the far right side of the plane. Well, of course, the bathrooms were right behind us. And so the plane gets up in the air, and, you know, within 30, 40 minutes, the lights are all turned out. And somebody alerts Warrior as the, you know, what, what was being said about him. And you know, a warrior, I was walking around with that, zzz, the electric razor to shave his arms. And uh, two of the guys know something's going on. They're feeling, so they stagger back to the bathrooms and I hear him go in and lock the door. Well, in the dark, you see this big, dark, hulking figure <laughs> walking back. And if you take a pen cap, for those of you at home, if you take a little, like a, like the old pen caps, you could pull off the pen that little strip that played off the side, you put that in there and slide the lock over to unlock the door to get into the bathroom. And he unlocks it in the first one. I'm like, I'm looking over my shoulder. And as soon as he opens the door, I'm like, I'm having to like cover my face because the stench, this guy has shat himself and the bathroom is like 
like a poop bomb has gone off in the bathroom and, but he's passed out. So warrior reaches in and gives a little haircut, close and locks the door, goes and opens the other one. Now this guy has puked. There's a strip of green, like bright green puke. that has gone around the bathroom. Same thing. The puke smell, right? And same thing gives him haircut. They close and lock the door. The girl who is pretty well endowed has a tank top on and she's got like shoulder length hair. Well, somebody had given her a hair trim halfway around. So her hair is long on one side, nothing on the other side. And then they snipped her shirt. And so the shirt falls open. And the fourth guy, now he must have been a partier because he's still awake and he's seen all this happen. So during the flight, he goes, now he's, he's barely awake, but he's staggering up and he starts pounding on the cockpit door. He's going to stooge off to the captain what's going on. So all the wrestlers zip back to their seats, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Pretending to be asleep. And the captain comes out. And I can see this because right over my shoulder, I'm watching. And the captain opens the first door. They close it and lock it. They next close it and locks it. Says something to the stewardesses and goes up front. And they get plastic handcuffs. And they handcuff the kid that's still awake that stooged it off. Put him in his seat. You know, Seatbelt him into his seat. And, uh, you know, we're flying cross country. And as we're landing in Pittsburgh, I'm thinking, I, I know somebody had to be awake. Somebody had to see what was going on here. And I'm the last person came off the plane, right? <laughs> there's no, there's no quick escape for me. And, uh, uh, you know, he had, you know, gone through and, uh, perfect was on that flight and, uh, had partaken in that. They, they, the end result is they ended up getting arrested. And then there's another plane story with Kurt where uh, we're up in first class and we get on the plane and, you know, anybody that knows Kurt Henning, there's a big river. So the guy next to him keeps on waking him up. Like, hey, man, I'm going to tell you, asking him. And Kurt, like, entertained him for a while. I'm like, hey, gives him shut eye. We're, you know, we've got a long day ahead of us. And this guy keeps waking him up and keeps waking him up. And I'm thinking, I, I know this is going somewhere bad eventually, but. Guy gets up and goes to the bathroom, and Kurt didn't turn around and go, "Hey, everybody, watch this." <laughs> Sticks his hand on his pants, digging around, and he pulls his hand, his finger out. And he's got shit on his finger, and he reaches over to the guy's glass, and he rims the guy's glass with the shit. <laughs> the guy comes back and sits down. And now Joe Laurinaitis was up there, Mike Hegstrand, Hawking Animal. Uh, it's all first class except this guy. Uh, wrestlers except this guy and the guy picks his glass up and he keeps waking Kurt up and he goes to take a drink and we all go <laughs> and he puts put doesn't take it puts it back down keeps talking a couple minutes later <laughs> like he's telling like oh like oh and I'm thinking he, he must have smelled it he's got to see it I can see chunks of poop around the around the rim of the glass from where I'm sitting finally several minutes goes by and he picks it up and he takes a big long drink of it. He goes, Excuse me, Stewardess, can I have another glass? This one tastes like shit. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody, there's Kurt sitting in the back in the seat next to him going, you know, his shoulders are going up and down. Yeah, Kurt was like renowned for that kind of stuff. Like he got to the point where, like walking through a bar, you know, just holding a beer in your hand, like walking through the bar, a bottle of beer. You'd feel somebody hit your hand. You look around and People all around you, 
pick my bottle up and I look and there's a couple of pills down the bottom dissolving. Oh. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, give me another beer, please. So you start learning to walk around with your thumb over yeah. the top of the beer, right? To to make sure somebody doesn't Mickey you. But yeah, those guys they're, they're on almost every type of flight, not necessarily anything that bad, but there was always something like that going on with the especially if Kurt Hennig was around and what she said about him, uh uh true that uh Stephanie, right? Uh, Steph from Pennsylvania, yes. Steph, yeah, yeah. Steph from Pennsylvania, from home, home state. Uh, Kurt was an amazing performer uh, in, in the ring. And uh, and just a little epitaph to that, at one point he had come to me. Vince never did. Uh, but he had come to me and said, hey, Vince is thinking about putting us together and calling us the perfect pair. And and I asked him what he thought of that. you know, And he said, well, you know, I'm all for you. I, he was getting to the point where he didn't want to take as many bumps and stuff. And nothing ever happened with it. So I can't say that that was something that Vince told me, but Kurt had come to me and said that and said that he was for it. So it never happened. I'd left that, that by the way, was the time that I left because my dad mm. uh, in the middle of, of uh, the, with the end of 90, early 91. So, yep. So with that, thank you very much, everyone, for sending in your questions. We'll be doing it again next month. And once again, if you want to submit your question for the franchise himself, it's Shane Douglas Questions at gmail.com. Send them there. For now, though, every single Tuesday, Franchise University with Shane Douglas is out. Five stars on iTunes, if you'd be so kind. And I'm going to throw it to the man himself to take us out of this show. Hey, but sitting under the learning tree with the franchise, Shane Douglas and James Romero, come back to Franchise University for more lessons. Ha, ha, ha.